welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Josephine Perry who is a sports and exercise psychologist. She has such an interesting career. Her new book, The 10 Pillars of Success, is out in August. I'm absolutely delighted to have her on. I won't do her justice, so I'm going to let her introduce herself. I'm Dr. Josephine Perry. I'm a sport and exercise psychologist, but I don't just work in sport. So I work a lot with actors, with medics, with people taking exams, people taking driving tests, people having to give big speeches that they're nervous about. Um, so a really, a really wide range of people that are looking for some performance psychology to learn how to be brilliant in what they do. Um, I, I have lots of one-to-one clients that I work with. Um, I also love writing. So I write for quite a number of magazines and I've written five books now. Um, the latest one comes out in uh, August and that's called The 10 Pillars of Success which looks at 10 characteristics in life that really help us be successful. It goes into all the evidence in the background of why they help us, why they benefit us. But then each chapter also interviews somebody you might have heard of. So we've got Dame Kelly Holmes, we've got Maxine Peake, we've got Sarah Pascoe, we've got Lucy Gossage. So some brilliant people who can bring that characteristic to life and kind of bring their success story into that characteristic. Uh, And then each chapter finishes with some kind of worksheets, some ideas, some activities you can do to develop your own skills in that area. When you were talking about your introduction there, what really struck me is just the wide range of people that you work with and the wide range of presentations. And that's what I'm hoping that people will take away from this podcast. It's just how, as a kind of a general theme, how we deal with setbacks, how our brain processes setbacks and adversity, um, and then how we respond. So we're both psychologists, aren't we? So we support people with what our brain does, so our cognition. We support people with what our emotions do and then how we behave as a result. So what I'd really like to start with is just kind of defining what's setbacks are so maybe in sport but also in some of those wider areas that you were talking about as well so people that might be taking driving tests having some big life events coming up you know what are setbacks and how does our brain deal with them in sport setbacks tend to be in two very distinct areas so one is around injury I did some research um, a long time ago looking at our likelihood of injury and I think there was a stat that basically said one in 20 million people have a body that is unlikely to get injured in some way. So that's three people in our country. So from that, it's kind of accepting that injury is very, very possible when you're an athlete. And even when I do workshops with 14, 15, 16 year olds, and you ask who's been injured, and we're talking about setbacks, probably get 70, 80% who put their hands up. So even at that young age, injuries are a really big deal for athletes and not necessarily the first time they have one, but it's that fear of re-injury because they know how much an injury takes out of them. They know they lose their coping mechanism for, for stress and upset in their life of 
going for a run or playing football. And that goes with an injury. So not only do they not be able to do what they love, they also lose a mechanism for handling difficult times. So there becomes that real fear of getting injured. And it's, it's a big deal, especially when they've set goals and they're working towards something and then that gets whipped away. So there's the injury side for athletes. And then there's the side that I think we all have, which is that feeling like a failure in some way. And that could be something very obvious, black and white, failed my driving test. But it could be giving your wedding speech and people not laughing at the jokes that you hoped they would. Or it could be one of the examples in the book came from an amazing guy called Drew McConey. And he's basically Mr. Optimism. He does the chapter on optimism. And he talked about um, when he did a show that they all thought was going to be brilliant. And the first night reviews were awful. And he had to make a very, very active decision of, do we carry on? What do we do? And he was like, I could have just hidden away. But he said, I couldn't. We had to see if there was a way we could kind of face this out. And he said he went to the theatre and he pulled all the dancers together and they didn't do their usual warm up. They talked about the show. They talked about what they loved in the show. They brought out that real intrinsic motivation for doing what they do. And he said over the week, the reviews just got better and better. And by the end of the week, it was sold out. And so I really love that. We all have these fears. It's usually around a fear of failure. And what we're trying to do in performance psychology is help people accept that fear, not try and hide it and fight from it, but really accept it, but then figure out how they behave in lines with their values or their purpose in order to still go out and do what matters to them. So much of what you said there will resonate with many people. And one of the things that I found off the back of the pandemic and talking to kind of groups of people and people through the media is as a psychologist, we want people to face that adversity, to face those setbacks, don't we? But it can feel really alien because actually every bone in your body just wants to avoid a quick fix, which you talk about actually in one of your chapters in your book. And doing what we call in psychology, the kind of psychoeducation work. This is what your brain's doing. This is what your body's doing. And the word, dare I say it, normalizing that. I think that can be so important people to go, this happens. It's not nice. But if I lean into it, that can be quite an important part of your journey and your recovery. Yeah. And one of the things I find difficult as a psychologist is that we give every client full confidentiality. But that means the stories can never be shared. That's one individual's story and and they own that. We're never going to go outside of those boundaries. What I love when I write books is that I get to interview people for them and those stories can be shared. And that really helps with the normalizing. So when I can say to an athlete that's really struggling with performance anxiety, do you know, Rebecca Adlington said exactly the same thing. She was really, really worried about this. She hated talking to people ahead of competitions. And she has this lovely technique she did that she talked about. And so she would stand on the swim deck before she's about to dive in and she would draw the curtains around her. So all she could see was her and her lane. And she couldn't see the crowd. She couldn't see her coach. She couldn't see the competitors. She just had her, her lane, and the swim she was going to do. And that's what she could focus on. And suddenly her athlete kind of gets it. They see that it's normal. I mean, Rebecca Adlington had it and she still won multiple, multiple medals. So that really helps to kind of go, I'm not alone. And there is stuff you can do to really help this. But you do have to do that kind of facing up to it to start with. Absolutely. So it's those two parts of the journey. So we've all been there. So psychologists, sometimes people have a a misconception that we will do everything perfectly, that we will lean into stuff. We all avoid, I will avoid. 
part of that journey is taking the time to lean in and understand, notice and observe. So I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy. And for me, that really works with a lot of people that I work with. And I'm sure a lot of people listening could do with support. And how do we begin to lean in a little bit? Are there any kind of tricks or anything that you do with people to help people make room for that? So we have the normalizing. Is there anything else that you can think of that would be really easy for people as a first step to leaning into tricky thoughts and feelings when your brain's predicting how things are going to be? And usually that's in a negative way. So there's some quite physical things we can do to push ourselves in that way. When I was training, I read an article. I can't remember what it's called. And it was basically a writer who wanted to do much more writing and to be published far wider, but was too scared to do so. And so the normal thing for her to do was to set some goals. And this is what we all do. And this is happens all over the place you set a goal for I would like to get four pieces in print this year feels like a very achievable performance focused goal she turned it completely on its head and she said this year I want a hundred rejections you're like "Uh and when I talk about this with athletes they're looking at me like why because when you go for a hundred rejections you're going to need to apply yourself to go out for at least a hundred things even if you're Um, pessimism suggests that you won't get any of them that still means you need to put yourself on the line a hundred times and so you go out wider with different more creative ideas than you might usually push to far more difficult to get into publications but you have to if you're going to achieve that goal and in doing so this girl got far more publications published in much better places than she ever imagined she would And that's one of those pieces I read that's just stuck with me for so long. So when I was training, I wanted to use something similar and I created a brave list. And I think when we're talking about this area, if we talk about the positives rather than the negatives, the negative is I feel anxious. If we instead talk about, yeah, but how can we get courageous? That feels like a more active thing we can do. So I I created this brave list and every time I had an idea to do something, Something that feels a bit scary, like setting up a podcast. You don't want to do it, right? There's too many things that could go wrong. But the goal of this is I'm going to try every idea that comes into my head. So you write it on the brave list. You find some way to try it. You chase it up again a month later if nothing's happened. You see where you get to. When I did it, 47% of the things that I tried came off which meant I got to go on BBC Breakfast on the red sofa. I got to speak to 1,200 people at a London Marathon event. I got to write my first book. Clothing company I loved let me put postcards with quotes about sports psychology into their kit when they sent it out. There were all these really cool things that often you walk around going, oh, that would be so cool. But you don't do it because stuff could go wrong or people could laugh at you. But because it was very proactively... I want to be brave and this is a way to do it. It can be really effective. So I've stopped trying to talk so much around performance anxiety and talk around bravery instead. And this was really close to home. I've got a five-year-old who uh, is incredibly competitive. I can see some perfectionistic traits already. And if there is a chance she will lose at something, she's not even going to try. She's not going to take that risk. And obviously my my kind of red flags as a psychologist are flashing all over the place of like, this is going to cause problems as she gets older. So we've worked really hard on a bravery bracelet and we have little beads and she gets to, every time she does something brave, she gets to feed them onto the bracelet until we've got enough to be able to tie up and she's going to wear it. 
And I'm actually going to buy her a really nice bracelet at the end of it. But I want her to be able to look down and go, I'm brave. We absolutely go through the psychoeducation of why your brain doesn't want to be brave. But we also focus on what can you do to go out and get those things that you would love to do and that something right now is stopping you. I love those ideas because I just think actually, you know, as you say, from five to 105, anyone can try those things and bridging that gap. So as a psychologist, quite often we want people to be working towards goals or to to move in line with their values. Um, And it's quite nice. I have a background in, in disability psychology. So sometimes breaking things down into small manageable chunks can actually be very good for everybody. So, you know, having those small beads, those one thing at a time, something tangible to hold on to, but also it helps. I imagine with the concept, you know, what we're doing, we're building up something here. And I'm just thinking actually for those people listening, particularly when we're coming back to sport as well, because, your career is just so so interesting to me when we're looking at people that have setbacks so I'm thinking of people off the back of the pandemic who may have taken up running for example and got maybe got really into certain sports because we were quite limited what we can do and actually for some people gave them time to find out what else they could be doing so there are people that I see on a day-to-day basis in my clinic for example who have setbacks in terms of injuries but they're not professional sports people but they really enjoy what they do they really value so I'm just wondering how we can kind of start to bridge that gap for those people in terms of helping them to have goals but getting kind of caught up in what you call in your book the quick fix I want to get back again back to running at a certain level for example and I was really interested in, in one of your chapters in your book on people that get hooked with that quick fix and making room for the journey and moving away from that hook. Yeah, so one of the chapters um, was about focusing on the process rather than the outcome. Yes. And it is so easy to focus on the outcome because those goals are the ones that feel glossy and shiny and we really want it. So we want a new marathon PB or we want to win stuff because that feels good and it's an easy narrative to have. Um, So it, it kind of ticks off those very easy to share metrics. The, the person I interviewed for that chapter is a guy called Casper Berry, who probably around our age, we would have seen on TV because he was in um, Biker Grove when we were all teenagers um, alongside Anton Deck. I remember um, that. But he actually rejected that side of life entirely. He went off to Cambridge to study economics. Um, then he became a film producer. And then he decided to go to Vegas to become a professional poker player. And he said the things that he could read all the books on poker, but what he really learned out of his time there was you cannot focus on each individual outcome. You can only focus on the processes you put in place. And when the processes are correct and they work for you, over time, that big picture, there is success. But if we focus on individual wins and losses, We're up and down all the time and we can't do the things that matter. And I think this is the hardest lesson for athletes to learn because we either have what we call ego orientation or mastery orientation. So with ego orientation, we're looking for the wins. And that really, really does drive some people. But the more you focus on winning or places or times, the more threat that comes into the the whole thing, which then triggers our amygdala and our whole threat system. We have strong physiological changes in our bodies. So as an athlete, you can't physically do your sport properly when your threat system is triggered in that way. It's, It's fascinating. Wimbledon's on at the moment. And to be able to watch Wimbledon and see the athletes that get really nervous about something, their whole demeanor and their whole style of play changes because of that response in their body. So we don't want our threat system switched on. And when we're after wins, 
and it's a win or lose situation, it's very likely we'll be triggered. If we focus instead on mastery and tasks that we can control and things we can do, there's no threat there. And so we spend much more time relaxed. We're actually able to focus on the tasks we need to focus on and we do far better. So the irony is when you stop trying to win, you're more likely to do well. But it is a really hard concept for athletes to get their heads around. Similarly, working with, say, an actor, the the big reason I tend to see actors and actresses and singers is auditions. Because you're one of maybe 100 people that are going for a role. And you could be utterly brilliant. But if your face isn't the type of face they want to see or you're slightly too tall for the person they have as the man that they want in it, or a myriad of other reasons, you won't get the role. It doesn't matter almost what you do. And yet it's a very threatening situation. I want this job and I might not get it. So it's a really hard one to focus, continue, but how do I just be the best I can? Think of the big picture. So yes, I might not get this role. Actually, if I do a really good audition, then the director might keep me in mind for something that comes up in the future. And so there can be positive outcomes of it, even though what you see in front of you might feel like a failure at the time or a setback. So having that mastery mindset all of the time. And I picked Maxine Peake to be that mastery person in the book because she'd spent three years, I think, trying to get into drama school. She went to a regular college to do drama and they wouldn't let her in any of the plays. They sent her off to get the props. And yet she's an amazing actress because she just kept going setback after setback, rejection after rejection. And she knew it was the thing for her. And so she just focused on the mastery. How do I get really good at this so they want me? So mastery is such a good way to handle those setbacks of, I just need to be good enough so that I feel confident and I can keep on doing what I love and not on the outcomes. So that Balance is so interesting, isn't it? So as psychologists, quite often we support people thinking about, well, the control agenda, as I call it, that, you know, as human beings, we hate not being in control. Look at the pandemic. We didn't like being in lockdown. We didn't like not knowing what this virus was doing and how it's going to impact our lives. But we can get really hooked with that, as you say. And it sounds actually that it's quite a powerful metaphor there that maybe if people are able to imagine what it's like being on that baseline in Wimbledon and, and taking that shot. And it's, it's almost going against every fibre in our body to not be focused on winning and I'm also wondering you know when we look at social constructs which is also part of being a psychologist you know if you've grown up in an environment for example where you've been supported to win or where that's been part of the kind of psyche is is how you manage with that you know how do you kind of untrain yourself if maybe you've grown up with that that one I think is the hardest when when you have only had validation or love in your life or felt that kind of validation or love in your life because you have succeeded at things yes it becomes one of your values and something as you'll know we do in act is we really really try and focus on values and and living those values and tying in small action-based things that meet your values as often as you can so you feel as authentically you as possible so that even if you don't win you've still behaved in a way that makes you feel proud at the end of the day and I've had so many conversations with clients about what do you do when the way you have been brought up and the attachment tools you have put in place because of how you were treated as a child have become your values, even though you don't necessarily feel like you want them to. And and how do we deal with that? And often the process I go through with people will be we try to get to three values that we're going to really focus on that absolutely are at the core of who we are. 
but we understand that one of those might be something that's almost been forced upon us at times and that's how we've learned to survive rather than it being something that genuinely if we hadn't have had that trauma in childhood we wouldn't have incorporated and that helps us kind of go okay that is who I am and that's why I've behaved that way for survival but I'd love to be more like this and start to build that in as an additional value so we're being pragmatic about you can't just get rid of something because it's it's who you are you've grown up with it usually over many many years but also optimistic, I would like to be more like that. And the one where that usually comes around is around achievement and I need to be perfect. That that narrative of I must be perfect in order to be accepted, in order to be good enough. And perfectionism is fascinating in sport because often it is what helps people become really good at what they do, but it also takes away so much of the joy of it because they will never be perfect. And there'll always be that gap between where they are and where they feel they should be. And that causes quite a lot of kind of disrupted well-being. And so sometimes those with high levels of perfectionism are like, I know that's a value I own, but I want to become more flexible. And again, that's something we're often working on in ACT, is how do we help people be more flexible so they can respond to the challenges in the environment around them rather than having very rigid routines that they feel they have to follow. And so it's not that we say, right, you're no longer a perfectionist. Try and be bad. Try and mess things up. But it is that we try and help them build in some flexibility to their lives and they will actively go out and try and be more flexible. And that can be something so simple to begin with. Change one of your bedtime routines. Don't shake your duvet cover out in the morning. Leave it messy. And a perfectionist face at that point will just look at you in utter horror. But even those small things, they just train your brain to go, ah, I left it messy and life carried on. And so we want to take, yes, sometimes we have values that aren't as helpful to us as we feel they could be. But let's pick something that I would genuinely love to be more like. And how do we feed that into your life? It's so interesting, as you were saying that then, I was just thinking I'm someone who likes to run around, make sure the house is ready before we go, is that there may be some leaning in for people, but it's <laughs> what I really like is those real life everyday examples. So while we're, you know, we're talking about sport, we're talking about your background, what I also want to do is, you know, what can other people listening to this take away? And what are those small examples of how we can perhaps lean in to uncertainty, lean into perhaps fear or apprehension? But also what I've just taken from that as well is that, you know, not trying to rewrite our past, that actually what we've been through, things we've been through actually do shapers as you say that's a really good way of putting it isn't it but to be mindful and curious to perhaps observe how these things may possibly get in the way and we're not trying to there's obviously lots of research about um growth through adversity some backgrounds can be so traumatic trying to find the good from them feels almost rude there's sometimes stuff is just horrific and trying to sit there and pull out the good stuff just feels so disingenuous to what that person has been through and we don't want to do that but we can look at maybe the situations you've been through have prompted you towards values that are like this this and this and those are wonderful values to have and in having those values even though they may have felt forced upon you by others you're going to make other people's lives so much better and so we can take a we can't rewrite our history it is what it is but it can stretch you it can help you thrive it can help you be a wonderful person and be able to appreciate that um I often I work a lot with junior athletes and sometimes we're going through results at the moment they've all just had exams 
loads of fat exams and they'll get results. And some of them will be like, I know that if I hadn't have been doing my sport this seriously, I would have got better results. And that's like a, oh, and how are you going to, that's, that's the situation. Yeah. You had to miss a lot of time to go off to these type of competitions. And we'll spend a lot of time doing things like gratitude lists to really look at, but what's your sport given you? So anytime you start to feel resentful, I might not get into that college course I want because I had to miss loads of time. I mean, someone was mentioning about when you did a competition during lockdown, you were allowed to compete as an international athlete, but you had to miss school the week before so that you were isolating. Then you had the week of the competition. Then you had to miss a week afterwards so you didn't take anything back to school because you traveled. So that's three weeks out for every competition. And some of these athletes, even at like 15, 16, are, are traveling, doing a lot of stuff. That, that wipes out a lot of school time. And so you could resent that or you can look at the good side. You could be envious of your friends that are going to go and get great results. Or you can be like, from my sport, I have got this, this and this. And one of the things I loved doing the research for the book, again, there's a chapter on gratitude, was that our brains cannot feel envious and gratitude at the same time. And I love that idea in this world where it's so easy to scroll through social media and see everybody else doing wonderfully and look at ourselves in comparison and feel like we've messed up. I love the idea that actually when we try and find the thing to be grateful for instead, that envy goes out the window. And the research that came up from gratitude was just phenomenal. And the person I interviewed for that chapter is... um, an oncologist called Lucy Gossage. But alongside her oncology, she's a consultant in it, she also runs a charity called 5K Your Way to get people who are going through cancer treatment and their friends and family to exercise because of the benefits they found for their treatment and their mental well-being. Plus, she also races Ironman races for fun, but wins them overall. Um, She's just utterly amazing. And her way of talking about gratitude and how it's benefited her as an athlete and as an oncologist was just so enlightening that she'd talk about she'd have to go for a long run at eight o'clock on an evening after work in the rain on the ring roads around Nottingham because there was nowhere safe else that she could run. And instead of feeling like, why do I have to do this? She could have that, I am so lucky I get to do this. My patients can't. And so or being able to bring that gratitude for what you can do, even when there's things that we can't, I think really helps with those setbacks too. And I was also thinking so much of what you said then will resonate with so many people, but actually whether that also helps with that inner critic, with that being able to do my exams to a certain standard, I must be able to get in this college and still perform in my sport. Um, I was going to pick up another point you said there. So what I found really interesting reading your book as well is, well, there's two things actually I wanted to cover. The, the role of fear. When you've had an injury before, you've had setbacks, is brain's fantastic ability when it thinks it's protecting us to go, this yeah. could happen. What if? What if? Maybe I should carry on. But also the role of sport in mental well-being. So when people have setbacks in sport, when sport is their life, especially if you're a professional athlete, yeah. when you've got those two things together that you may have to take time out from your sport, there may be fear about that future injuries reoccurring but also taking time out and the fact that the secondary game for a lot of people is it's really good for their well-being yes active I often say sport is fantastic for your health and well-being until you become a professional athlete and then it's pretty diabolical so most athletes are doing way more exercise than we would probably consider I think World Health Organization suggests it's about 150 minutes a week I I work with a few elite athletes but most of the athletes I work with are amateurs and they are definitely doing more than that I am 
definitely most people I know probably do eight to 10 hours training a week if you're doing cycling, running, triathlon type racing, which is probably more than we should be doing. I also did research for my, um, my training as a sports psychologist into exercise addiction and looking at trackers and watches and Strava and all of those things. Um, And we found those who, the more technology you use, the more likely you are to have a risk of exercise addiction. And we know then there are some really serious side effects out the other side of that. So exercise is brilliant for health and well-being. I, I literally have a book called The Psychology of Exercise that shows all of the benefits psychologically and cognitively and socially and every other area for doing exercise. But when we become professional, it becomes our entire identity, which triggers a ton of those threat systems and the fear and the inner critic, and we lose our main coping mechanism. So for me as an amateur, I have a bad day. I put on my trainers and I go for a run and 35 minutes later, I feel better. But if I'm an elite athlete, I can't do that because I've got to follow the training that's been set out for me and I can't mess up my recovery systems. So when you go from an an amateur to elite to a professional, you lose one of your key coping mechanisms. And that is really hard for people because it's not just a way of handling things. We know that exercise really helps your um, cognitive behaviors. We know it helps creativity. We know that it's when we're working on a problem and struggling with a solution to a problem, when we say go out for a run, Our brain works on that in the background without us actively thinking about it. So many times people say, yeah, when I got back from the run, I had the answer. Because your brain's doing that work without the active thought going in, and it will come up with something that works very well. When I worked in a regular organization, I used to phone my boss with these brilliant ideas I'd have. And she'd be like, have you just been running? I'm like, yeah. But that was when my creative stuff came out. So exercise is brilliant for lots of reasons. But when you're doing it professionally... It's a real difficulty because there's no way to go and get that same kind of feeling. You have to really focus on trying to to find other ways to deal with difficult things in life and very actively try and have other identities. I love watching female athletes that come back from having babies because actually suddenly their identity isn't just as a swimmer or a cyclist. They're also a mum. And that gives them a very different perspective on how they do things. And often they do very, very well. I'll always remember um, Paula Radcliffe crossing the finish line second at London. And um, she scooped up her daughter and she did an interview. And she said, Isla doesn't mind that mummy came second. Isla just loves me. And that is like, yes, we've got more identities then. Because that thing with the fear that you mentioned, I get my athletes to name their fear. They give it a physical name, that threat system, the amygdala in the head that gets a name and it gets a character because then they can start to separate themselves from their amygdala and they can notice that the thoughts the amygdala are giving them are just thoughts and not facts because when it feels like it's all scrunched up inside your own head, it feels like a fact. You're going to fail. This is going to be embarrassing. Fred's going to go faster than you you're going to look like a loser. You've wasted all your time doing all that training and you're still slow. All of those messages our brain gives us. But if we assign them to, you know, mine's called Joe. Mine's a, mine's a meerkat called Joe. So I assign mine to the meerkat called Joe. And I'm just like, Joe's telling me this could be embarrassing. It really nicely distances from it. And I can then calm Joe down with a it might be embarrassing, but at least I've tried. And I'll be really disappointed in myself if I don't try. So I'm going to try. 
And then we swing it around to those values and the purpose. It matters to me to try because for me, I want my daughter to know that you're brave when things get tough. It really is. I've got to teach her that if I teach her anything in life, that when stuff gets tough, you stick your head down and you get on through it. And so I can feed that back to Joe, and I can think, come on, Joe, we've got to finish this. I can't not give her a medal at the end of it. How is that going to look? And because that's emotional and because it matters to me and because it's part of my purpose, it becomes much easier to override that inner critic and those unhelpful thoughts. And so that's kind of a process I work with all my athletes on, which helps with the inner critic, but it really helps with fear. And, and injury is the toughest one because sometimes we're genuinely injured. And sometimes there's genuine pain. And how do we differentiate between genuine pain and discomfort and just not really being bothered to do it today? And that voice in our head telling us we're going to lose. So why don't we quit and give ourselves a really good excuse right now? There's all these different bits entangling ourselves in our own brains. So the pain bit is really different. We spend a lot of time trying to identify what's pain what's discomfort, not necessarily writing off pain. So there's a lovely phrase from a writer I adore called Alex Hutchinson, and he has a brilliant book called Endure. And it looks at um, what goes into endurance runners, basically. And he has this phrase of pain is information. And I love that spin on it. Okay, my knee's hurting right now. Does that mean I need to run differently? Does it mean I need to slow down a little bit? Does it mean I need to change my style? Does it mean I need to stop? But you start to approach things very differently with that little bit of distance. I love that idea of distance. So one of the things that really struck me in your book as well is kind of dealing with pain and, and a couple of concepts that caught my attention that actually we could apply to a lot of people facing adversity is just knowing the difference between, as you say, pain that means you need to stop, you know, medically not good for you, but pain that might mean something else. So just perspective taking. And then I guess that's what I would like people to take away from this podcast is that our brain's really good at telling us, right, this is how, how it is. You need to listen to me. But our ability to perhaps utilise, I guess, our autonomy to go, okay, right, I'm noticing what brain's saying, but actually what else is there in this situation? What else can I draw on to help me make decisions about what I need to do? And I absolutely love, so I was also really struck in your book about the different identities. So when, you know, professional athletes have setbacks, when they have injuries, what else do you have in your life? Those things that perhaps you can come through for times when perhaps they need to take quite a prolonged period out of the sport or really have to do something quite different. And I thought actually quite a lot of people could take away from that in yeah. terms of you know different areas of values quite a lot of us define ourselves about what we do for a living or whether we're a parent but we're not quite so good I don't think at seeing no. ourselves in multiple roles and one of the things I've started doing with athletes much more is helping them create a table where along the top they have the values that they that are there their core values and down the side they identify all their different identities and then they start looking at how can they feed more of more value-based actions into different identities. And that really helps identify you're not just an athlete, you're much more than that. There's, there's a book that I really dislike the idea of called How Bad Do You Want It? And it's that idea that you've got to really, really want to go out for things. And all I see is the more somebody wants something, the harder it is to go and get it. Because if I feel I am a runner and everything about me is running and that's who I am, Every race is a threat. Every single time I stand on a start line where someone's going to be timing me, my amygdala is going to go completely haywire. The physiological changes kick in. I can't run so well. And I hate every moment of it because all I'm doing is staring at a watch. So I find it so important to span out identities. 
And something I did a lot at the beginning of the pandemic with everybody was something called ACE. So we look at um, each day you want to achieve something, you want to communicate with somebody and you want to do something you enjoy. And it was a process we put in when everything kicked off of like, this is a way to help kind of keep you sane during what's going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen and we can't control it. And it's also new and different and ambiguous. But with these three things in your life each day, you can feel a little bit more control. And some elite athletes will really struggle with they've got they've got people in place no problem but with well what else do you enjoy and what else would feel like an achievement to you those can be quite hard interestingly lots of athletes love baking that comes up all the time baking is incredibly popular probably because they use so many calories they need to find good stuff to eat but outside of that it was quite hard because there's a whole culture that if you do sport and you want to be that professionally you have to do masses and masses and masses of it that isn't the reality so the reality is olympic medalists don't tend to actually medal until 26 27 apart from in gymnastics and swimming they're younger sports but other sports you tend to medal much later on and the best athletes the multiple medal winners actually don't specialize in their sport until 14 But yet I get parents phoning me, seeing if I can work with their six, seven, eight-year-old because they're struggling with their sport. And my answer is always no. They need a new sport. If it's causing you that much anxiety and stress at at that age, find something else to do. There's 33 Olympic sports, I think. Go and find another one that they'll love. But nothing should be causing us that much stress in sport that young. And, And yeah, some of the athletes I see that do the best are the ones that do lots until 13, 14. And then find the thing that they enjoy the most. But they've given other stuff a good chance and they get crossover. So they'll actually get some really good skills from different things. They've seen different coaching styles. So they know what coaching style tends to work for them. And they've been able to really assess things. But there is this real culture. We have to be brilliant really, really, really early. Should we be doing more? Should we be pushing this? And as a parent, it's really easy to get drawn into that of why isn't my child doing that? I should be, we should be pushing them too. How else are they going to make it? And we see the stories of Tiger Woods or the Williams sisters, or they must be doing all of this. We need to do it too. But we don't see the stories of the thousands and thousands of kids that not only didn't make it, but dropped out of their sport and never want to do it again because of that kind of pressure. So I think it's really important that we do give athletes at any age lots of different identities we don't want to just be one thing it's so interesting because what i was just thinking there another little takeaway might be is looking at the kind of social system and those around and how they can perhaps catch themselves perhaps in that fear mode that threat mode you know good old herd instinct kind of kicking in yep. so with all this amazing stuff that we've covered today i like to ask my guests for kind of one adversity takeaway is there anything that you can think of so those people dealing with setbacks especially in sport there a little nugget adversity takeaway that you can leave us with today there is a autobiography from Ronda Rousey and I won't even work in boxing or contact sports I, I hate the idea of helping somebody train to hurt somebody else it goes against everything I have so I was surprised I read the book but I was doing some research for something and I read it and a bit that really really struck out was when she was at the lowest of the low she had no funding whatsoever she slept in her car she cleaned the gym she worked at And she did it being able to think, when I am world famous, when I have won everything I can win, I will be writing my autobiography and this will be a good story for my autobiography. 
it will show this is the low moment, which I bounced back. And I often say that to athletes. And I love that idea of being able to see those really tough times as the important part of our journey. The actual important bit isn't necessarily the, what we get at the end of it, but it's being able to look back and go, I came from here and this is where I've got to. And so if we can embrace the tough times, sounds so cheesy, but if we embrace those as this is the bit that I get to bounce back from, this is what makes me resilient. This is what will get me where I want to go. And I'll get to, this will be a chapter in my book. And that's okay, because I'll have other chapters where it's all gone brilliantly. I think that when you're in the moment can kind of go, okay, I can handle this. I think my takeaway from today is just how powerful it can be, but also scary to just lean in to tricky stuff, but actually how valued that is in terms of your journey as, as yeah. well. Thank you so much for being my guest. I'm, I'm so blown away to be able to talk to you. Um, how can people find you? So they want to find out a bit more about what you're doing. How can they find you? And what is the name of your book? And when's it out? So I've got a website called performanceinmind.co.uk. Um, and there's a section on there that's got lots and lots of fact sheets and worksheets and blog posts and everything called Performance Zone. So you can find anything on there. Um, I spend far too much of my life on Twitter. So I'm Josephine Perry on Twitter. And the book is called The 10 Pillars of Success. It is out on August the 25th and you can pre-order it now. Fantastic. I'm going to be pre-ordering it straight after this. <laughs> Lovely to have you on and um, congratulations on your new book. I look forward Thank to you. reading it. Thank you for coming on, Josephine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast helping you one step at a time.